Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Tim Van Emmerich, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Yeah, thank you, Brad. Nice to be here. Look, it's a real pleasure. And I have been uh, reading up on your research this morning and I, and I and you came across my radar a little while ago. So it's great to finally sit down and have a, have a chat with you. My uh, esteemed co-host can't make it, Jeremy Brown. He sends his condolences. He actually was involved in a shot over jet accident, would you believe? I'm not sure you know New Zealand very well, but they've got these uh, boats, basically jet boats that go through these crazy river systems. And unfortunately, they had a crash. And look, long story short, Jeremy's fine. He's a bit battered and bruised, uh, but hopefully we'll be back soon. But you've got quite the story as well. Like uh, You look quite young, Tim. I'm not sure how old you are, but you're an associate (laughs) professor. Assistant (laughs) professor, assistant professor. Sorry, uh, assistant professor. Sorry, but that's still pretty impressive. Tell us this backstory because you look... Yeah, very you know young. Thirty two. And- I feel uh, I feel that I'm getting older already, but uh, <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't I don't really think in young and old anymore. But um, I'm just very happy to be where I am. You've done some great research, but to take us all back to the origin story. How did you get interested in plastic pollution? That's a good question, actually. It's not something that was on my radar for a long time. I studied in the, in the Netherlands, or I, I mean, I, I work in the Netherlands and I studied in the Netherlands. It sounds all a bit boring, but luckily, uh, with all my all my projects, I can uh, see many beautiful and, unfortunately, also less beautiful parts of the world. No, I, I was trained as a civil engineer in uh, in the Netherlands, actually, at Delft University of Technology. I specialized in water resources and uh, hydrology. Throughout my master's and, and PhD, I was really focusing on measuring all kinds of things related to water. So how much water do you find in reservoirs? How much water is flowing through rivers? Um, how can you use new technology in the ground, but also from remote sensing, from satellite remote sensing, to measure all these different variables? Before working on plastic pollution, I was mainly interested in the effect of water stress on vegetation. So how can you measure mm. droughts in the Amazon? How can you measure water stress in corn plants? with satellites and with, with new sensors in the field. And I really liked it, but then um, at some point I had to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh, looking around and then I realized that there is, um, well, there's this whole new field that was emerging, which was the field of, yeah. of plastic research. And the, yeah. yeah, there was already a lot of work done on microplastics, but then I noticed that on macroplastics, so the real big stuff, everything larger than half a centimeter, there was barely any work done. And of mm. course, as a scientist, that triggered me. Whereas in the half a decade before, I was always working on improving existing methods. 
and improving data collection of ongoing data collection strategies or reusing, repurposing available data and observations. This is a field where there was nothing there. Everything had yeah. to start from scratch. There was no standardized methods. There were no methods at all. That, that of course, is very exciting. And that's in combination with the fact that plastic pollution is also an emerging threat, that there is more and more evidence that it ne- negatively affects ecosystems, human health, human livelihoods, etc. I think it was a good reason to start uh, diving into the field. Yeah, and, and it is amazing how as big a issue plastic pollution is. The research is relatively new, and we'll talk about your research shortly. But even in the study, you've actually dispelled some pretty key myths around you know the sources and the magnitude of plastic from river systems, etc., which which I find really fascinating. But I guess backtrack a little bit, like so, getting a job as an engineer in the Netherlands shouldn't be that hard, really. And Delft University is a very very well regarded university internationally. I've actually mm-hmm. worked with quite a few hydraulic and flooding and coastal engineers from Delft University, and even Australia go over mm-hmm. to Delft to study there. So yeah. it's interesting how you've gone from a country that's obviously very heavily reliant on uh, hydraulic engineers and a strong history of hydraulic engineering and coastal engineering and focused on uh, plastic pollution. But yeah, total credit to you because it's obviously a, an area that we do need all the science to appropriately mitigate. And this is the thing I find really fascinating about your research in particular is it's not science for science sake. You, you, we've got an issue and we're trying to work out how best to mitigate that issue. And to do that, you really need to understand the problem. Exactly. And this is where I think you've, you've done a great, you, you and your team, I should point out, have done a great job. Thanks. So well Thanks. done. Very nice. Very, very nice to hear. Um, you flatter me there. <laughs> not sure if you see it, but I'm starting to blush here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a sweet talker. But look, uh, uh, backtracking a little bit prior to talking about this study. So why are rivers, like, so your, your, a lot of your research is focusing on rivers as a source of plastic pollution. So why are rivers such a big source of plastic pollution going into our oceans in the first place? So first of all, I, I would like to uh, nuance that a little bit because I, or what we actually see is that rivers are, well, you can, you can see them as sources, but what we actually think, and that's maybe the next step, is that rivers are major sinks of plastics. Yeah, yeah. And so it depends a bit what, from what point of view you're looking at. And uh, of course, I think the, the whole field of plastic pollution research, but also all the efforts to mitigate plastic pollution have more or less started with the ocean. The discovery of the, the, the plastic soup in the open ocean, all the coastlines that are polluted with plastics. And it, of course, raised one of the major questions, where is all this plastic coming from? Is it coming from local sources on the ocean itself? Is it coming from fisheries? Is it coming from somewhere else? And then slowly but surely, there was more and more evidence that uh, a lot of plastic that you find in the coastal environment and partially also in the open ocean could be land-based either through coastal emissions, so just direct dumping or littering on coastlines, or through rivers, which uh, may function as sort of conveyor belts of uh, land-based plastic waste that's collected, uh, mobilized for all kinds of uh, natural variables, such as surface runoff and wind, and then slowly moving towards the ocean or transport into Mm. the ocean. But actually, the more that we look to river systems itself, the more we find that plastics are actually accumulating everywhere within river systems. And only a very, very, very small portion is emitted into the ocean. And with emitted into the ocean, it means that it leaves the the estuary, it leaves uh, the river system into, well, the sea, but more Evidence also suggests that most of this plastic is then directly deposited very close around the river mouth. So the fraction yeah. that really makes it into the, the far, far open ocean, I think is even even smaller than we think. 
That really is amazing because a lot of the sort of plastic mitigation efforts have actually focused on cleaning up plastic that's already in our oceans. And you talk about these river systems being a sink. And I'm not sure if this is a, there's a statistic in your paper which really shocked me around plastic accumulation in river systems. Am I right in saying it's 98.5%? 98.5% of all plastic entering our rivers stays in our rivers? So what we what we think is that with uh, let's say with with the newest models that is sort of checked with the latest data on river systems, we think that less indeed less than two percent of the plastic leaking into the environment is making it into the ocean. Right. So, so a lot of plastic we think is already accumulating on land. It doesn't even on get land. into the okay. rivers, yeah. and then yeah. when it gets into the rivers, only a very small fraction makes it all the way down to the river mouth, and then even right. a smaller fraction makes it into the ocean. So of all the plastic we're sort of depositing on land, only less than 2% is actually making its way into the ocean. Yeah, that's what we think at a global level. Eh? So it can yeah, very level. much vary from place to place and from time to time. But for example, yeah, you, you can also look at extreme cases uh, where, for example, a country like Germany, and, and not because they pollute so little, but because of the, the geography and because of the driving forces, the amount of plastic emitted into the environment in Germany is... Well, only a very, very small portion is making it into the ocean through the river mouth in the Rhine, for example, which is located mm. in the Netherlands. So yeah. just imagine that if you live somewhere upstream in, in Freiburg or in uh, Bonn or Cologne, every piece of plastic that that already makes it to, into the ocean needs to travel hundreds and hundreds of kilometers all the way down to the river mouth yeah. in the Netherlands. And along the way, it can get stuck in vegetation under riverbanks, it can get ingested by biota, it can get stuck at infrastructure or simply just taken out by mm. either parties or people that do that on purpose or unintentionally. Mm. So if you think about it, it already starts making sense. Uh, I think that, that if you look at these large river systems, like I'm currently in, in Cambodia, we have been mm. studying uh, the Mekong River for the last uh, week. And when you think about it, that here we're still hundreds of kilometers away from the river mouth. We're still, you know, thousands of kilometers away from the source. So just imagine that someone one, two thousand kilometers upstream for, from where I'm sitting now, unintentionally, let's assume, drops a plastic item into the Mekong River. It's so unlikely that it will ever make it here because of all the factors that I just mentioned. Mm. And also all the stuff that we're measuring here, we already see that within a couple of kilometers, the amount of plastic in the river can vary so much. And it seems that most of the plastic that you find in a river that it's not coming from far. So also meaning that, uh, that, that the plastic in rivers doesn't all, doesn't, doesn't travel that far either. Like it's, it's very likely that it gets, it gets stuck on the riverbank very, very soon. And it's worth noting that the plastic that obviously is re retained in our river systems and waterways upstream of those river systems is still causing impact. It's not, you know, inert. It's not, you know, uh, harm free. It's still causing an impact to the ecology that, like you said, the biota and potentially even us. And obviously, it has the opportunity to to break up into smaller and smaller pieces and, and accumulate pollution and cause further damage as well. Exactly. That's maybe also a good point to, to nuance because so far, we've been talking about the bigger plastics, so the microplastics, mm. the, the, the items, the fragments, everything that you can still see if you're, if you're relatively close. But it means that everything that is, all the plastics that are degraded or fragmented into microplastics, potentially even nanoplastics, the story is a bit different because for those plastics, we simply don't know where to end up and... Yeah. You know, once they're very small and they're very hard to detect, they may as well uh, be taken along with the river into the oceans. But uh, mm. for the big stuff, yeah, I think our hypothesis is just being verified and validated with every new piece of information that we get from the field. Yeah. 
Speaking of old hypotheses, there used to be a, a sort of a rough estimate that something like 80% of all plastic from our rivers was just from, from 10 rivers worldwide. What was that actually based on? Well, that was based on, an, uh, on another modeling exercise. So I'm a field-based scientist. I, I try to really gather my data from the field and I try to interpret that. But of course, you cannot measure everything always everywhere. So what can you do? You can sort of try to learn from your observations, make simple models to describe what you, what you saw or, or observed, and try to transfer that to places where you don't have data. And this is exactly what, what we did, but also what previous mm. estimates and previous efforts did. So with uh, the very scarcely available data out there, they tried to make a, a relatively simple model, plastic emissions into the ocean to river characteristics and to a prediction of um, mismanaged plastic waste for mm. river systems. And based on that, estimated how much plastic could um, flow into the ocean. Now, I think the big difference is, is that for these older versions uh, of these models, it was assumed that river discharge is one of the main proxies, one of the main variables that determines plastic transport and emissions into the ocean. And of course, what you then get is that rivers with a lot of discharge, such as the Mekong, such as the Nile, such as the Amazon River, such as the Rhine, maybe, you know, all the, the world's big rivers, that they, per definition, are contributing to a very large extent to this uh, global river plastic emission. So that's where it's coming from. It's, it's based on the assumption that discharge itself is already a good proxy for river plastic emission. And yeah. we're yeah. now seeing that that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Yeah, and it's fascinating. So uh, I guess in, in sort of layman's term, the assumption was bigger, big river systems mean big amounts of plastic. Exactly. And this sort of brings me to this. So they had an estimate that 80% of all plastic was coming from 10 rivers. Now, this paper of yours, this study, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes, it's called More Than a 1,000 Rivers Account for 80% of Global Riverine Plastic Emissions into the Ocean. It's actually, I think it's 1,656 rivers, roughly, account for about 80% of the plastic emissions. So it's a big increase from just 10. So backtracking a little bit, what, what was the sort of impetus for this study? Why was this study undertaken in the first place? Well, because based on, the, on our field observations and based on, on all the evidence collected also by others around the world, we started doubting this hypothesis because, mm. because when, when visiting these large river systems, uh, well, first of all, I noticed it's extremely difficult to measure plastic in large rivers. Yeah. I mean, it's really yeah. difficult to measure big river systems anyway. Uh, and also <laughs> it's difficult to, to measure plastic. So measuring plastics in big rivers is just very complicated. But I found it very interesting that all these river systems that I visited, I barely saw any plastics actually flowing into the ocean. Because wow. I imagined, of course, that, that you know, I imagined, them, I imagined these, these garbage patches in the ocean to be these carpets of plastics where you could mm. maybe walk on. And I imagined that uh, these emissions from the, from the rivers are these constant streams of, of bottles and, and, and chairs and, and Tupperware boxes and what have you. Basically, the movies or that you sometimes see on Twitter. Yeah. But that is luckily not necessarily the case because during yeah. most times, there is barely any sort of constant stream of plastics into the ocean, especially from these big river systems. On the other hand, what we did see is that if you go to places where people are densely populated, where the population lives very close to river systems mm. and very close to the river mouth, in combination with maybe suboptimal uh, waste infrastructure, mm. those are the locations where you do see sort of almost this constant flow of plastics from land into the ocean, through sewage systems, through littering, through, through wind and, and, and other factors. And you do see these very high concentrations of plastics in these relatively small river systems or, yeah. or even urban canals. 
And that is actually the first time that I that I did see something that looked like a plastic carpet mm. and a sort of continuous uh, stream of plastics uh, flowing towards the ocean. So that that is basically the reason that got us to think and uh, and think about okay, well, if we just take a step back and try to synthesize all the observations and anecdotal evidence that that we and our colleagues uh, collected, what do we think that makes sense? Does it really make sense that a river like the Amazon, where a mm. great deal of the population lives thousands of kilometers away from the river mouth? Is that really the river that contributes so much to plastic emissions? Or are it rivers, um, well, unfortunately, in Southeast Asia, where you have islands that are extremely populated with people living close to river systems, close to the coast, close to river systems that are uh, close to the coast, what do you think makes sense? Is it, is mm, it, is it really mm. these big river systems with barely any people, or is it these small river systems with a lot of people and maybe suboptimal waste management that is accounting for most of the plastic uh, transport and emission into the ocean? And mm. obviously, we arrived at the latter, and that, does got, that, that got us to think how we can sort of transfer our, as we say in Dutch, our underbelly feeling into actually <laughs> a theory and science. And uh, that was basically the starting point of the whole yeah. uh, exercise. So you, you've got these observations that you and your team are sort of indicating that the the, the theory, the, the original estimate of 80% coming from just 10 rivers is just wrong and you think it actually might be the complete opposite. It might be actually sort of uh, smaller river systems being the, the key contributors. But obviously, and in, in, in what one term that we often use on this show is without data, you're just someone with an opinion. So how do you actually go about getting the data? How do you actually go about on a global scale, predicting and also calibrating plastic discharges. Yeah, that is really one of the. Yeah, no, I, I know it's a big challenge, especially if you think about it. You know, we're talking about thousands yeah. of rivers here. Well, yes. I can tell you, unfortunately, we did not have data for thousands of rivers, so we had to still, you know, rely on the data that we have and find a smart way to extrapolate that and use that in our models. But I think one of the key issues again is the lack of data, the lack of observations, mm. and the observations that have been done are not really consistent. For years already, there is this ongoing effort to to harmonize and to streamline plastic measurement methods. Because, well, you know, you can choose for good reasons to measure plastics using a net or maybe using a drone or a camera, or as we often do, just stand on bridges and count plastics with our mm. with our bare eyes. But how do you synthesize those data? How do you make sure that you that you can compare them and make sure that you have the same variables, the same metrics to compare method A and B? And that is where we did a lot of work. So we tried to harmonize all these different me- data collection methods. Also, other uh, colleagues around the world, uh, notably my colleague uh, Daniel Gonzalez Fernandez from the University of Cadiz and his team have been doing a great deal of work on harmonization of methods. Uh, currently, uh, UNEP launched new guidelines on the harmonization of uh, freshwater plastic monitoring methods. And step by step, we found ways to not only uh, combine and synthesize and harmonize available observations, but also make sure that the observations that, that we were doing ourselves and colleagues around the world were, were doing uh, from that mm. moment on were synth or were har- harmonized. So basically mm. measuring in the same way in different locations is the key towards a more, more global understanding and at least a, a, a global comparison of the data that is collected in, in rivers around the world. And so on that, so obviously you mentioned how historically plastic discharge estimates had been based on, like you said, standing on a bridge deck and looking at the river and watching plastic float past. Is that sort of a bit conservative or potentially inaccurate even? Because you're only seeing the obviously the floating plastic. 
on the surface, you don't see what's in the water column or potentially running along the sort of bed of the river system, recognising that only a portion of plastic in our ocean or in river systems at least will actually float. Like I think there's a stat around the Unomira, I've seen um, use this infographic that they say 94% of all plastic in our oceans is at the sea floor. I'm not sure what the estimate is for the river systems. Uh, I'm not sure if you can sort of provide indications how much is on the surface, how much is in the water column, how much is near the bottom. But obviously, how do you how do you really measure yeah. properly plastic in a river? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you know, the, the first the first answer is I I don't know. I have no idea how yeah. much plastic is being missed right now. And uh, and I, I, again, the the main setback there, the main challenge is the lack of reliable observations. So there have been some studies that measured, let's say, the vertical profile uh, and the vertical distribution of plastics, microplastics specifically mm-hmm. okay. in river systems. But it's, it's really just not even a handful of studies in an even smaller handful of wow. rivers. Even there, the data is quite, it's quite uh, variable and it very much depends. So in some places, you find uh, the majority floating or at least okay. in the upper half of the river. Whereas in other places, we maybe see um, much more plastics below the surface. And right. that already suggests that, well, it depends on the river, the river characteristics, the flow conditions, but also it depends on the, the plastic types in that river. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what you see already is, well, for example, if you take a pet bottle, and I, yeah. I, I have to say I have one here. <laughs> well, you're <laughs> but, in Cambodia, so I, I, exactly. I dare say you can't drink the water. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you have to uh, hydrate yourself some way. But let's <laughs> say that. Please keep our country clean. So they're, they're making an effort. Okay. Anyway, these pet bottles are, are, I think, typical examples of plastics that you do see floating around. Because often they are closed, they entrap air yeah. or, or maybe liquid with a different density. And these are, are, are plastic items that you see floating in many rivers around the world. But the thing is, once the cap is open and once uh, yes. a bottle fills with, exactly. uh, with water, uh, water, the same water from the river, then you see that most of these uh, items actually float so, or not float anymore. So sink. they sink into yeah. the riverbed, into the sediment, or I don't know where to end up. So for items like pet bottles, it's sort of, it's sort of a binary, uh, it's binary opportunities mm. or possibilities. They either float or they sink. For other plastics, such as, well, let's say multi-layer plastics or, or soft uh, foils and, and plastic bags, it is way more complicated but because it seems that they are so almost neutrally buoyant that the, the location in the, in the vertical water column so much depends on, well, maybe the geometry and the state of the plastic itself, but also mainly it, it depends on the flow conditions. So you see that if there is more turbulence, more uh, a higher flow velocity, Plastics seem to be, or some plastics seem to me, be more evenly distributed across the water column. Okay. For other plastics, it doesn't matter. Like it's just random. Sometimes they're at the top, sometimes they're at the bottom, sometimes they're in the middle. And, uh, you know, 100 meters downstream, it could be completely different. That in combination with, uh, with potential interventions. So, well, I guess we're all aware of all these interventions that are being designed and also uh, implemented already around the world skimming or surface skimming devices in, for example, the Seine River in France, also new technology by, for example, uh, what is it? Uh, yeah, the ocean cleanup or the, the waste shark or the, in the, the sea bin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They yeah. all focus on, on the upper parts. So it could be that by collecting so much waste at the surface that uh, for those specific rivers, uh, downstream of those interventions, well, maybe even the majority is then remaining below the surface. So as you said, rightfully so, you know, standing on a bridge, looking at the surface, you may think, well, uh, there's no plastic to be seen. It must be pretty clean. But in fact, it's only because 
the surface plastics have been taken away and the submerged plastics are still there. But how does ratio look like and what are the exact driving forces that determine the vertical distribution is still, I would say, largely unknown. That's Um, fascinating. But we're working on it. So, of course, there is all kinds of methods related to actual physical sampling. So, again, putting nets out there, dragging them along with with boats Mm. or installing them with uh, with cranes for bridges, etc. Those are steps to to really sample plastic below the surface. But as you already hear, maybe in, in how I describe it, you need a lot of infrastructure. So you either need a big boat that is able to pull a big net, or you have to have a very big crane that you can put on a big uh, yeah. uh, bridge to to basically deploy these, these large nets underwater. So it's not very easy to do this in many places at the same time or do this for longer periods of time just because it's 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 not very cost effective. Uh, effective is expensive. You need a lot of infrastructure um, and it uh, it requires a lot of resources. But luckily there is alternatives. So one of the things that we're working on is the uh, is exploring the use of sonar, so echo, sound waves um, to detect plastics below the surface. Um, and how that works is basically, well, you know, you send a sound wave into the water and sound waves are reflected by basically anything that crosses its path. Uh, could be fish, could be the surface or the, the bottom of, of the river, but it also can be uh, litter items and specifically plastic items. Mm. And we've, we've showed that that's sensitive already. So we can detect all kinds of items below the surface with the, with, with sound waves, basically. And now the next step is, of course, how can we distinguish plastic items from organic material? How can we distinguish uh, a plastic bottle from a fish? Yeah. And how can we go take the next step into making this operational and, uh, and really arrive at yeah. sort of continuous, reliable um, uh, data? Yeah. Look, and look, I don't mean to be... Uh critical of the methods because I know I, I ta- honestly I take my hat off to you guys uh, you, you and your team for trying to provide more of an understanding around this issue like obviously there are knowledge gaps but sometimes with science you sort of do the best you can with the, the data you have available and obviously we could spend the next thousands of years thousand years trying to study plastic pollution in our river and ocean systems and waterways but unfortunately we just don't have that opportunity and we do need I guess to act quickly and effectively in the best way we can. But, but I guess my, my concern around sort of the, the, the initiatives that focus on trying to remove plastic out of our river systems and harbors, et cetera, from this, when they're focusing on the surface, like there's a few technologies you mentioned, the CBIN project, um, the, the Boyan Slats uh, interceptor, which is from the ocean cleanup team. And, and obviously they are focusing on floating plastic and ha- total hats off to these guys. They are doing a great job of removing that plastic and it, every little bit helps. But my concern is that it provides a false sense of security that we're addressing the problem. We're turning the tap off of plastic pollution, whereas fundamentally we're just not. And we, we know that cleanup, and these are cleanup technologies or initiatives, they are obviously the least effective, most expensive form of cleanup is the, the bottom of the rung. Um, we need to obviously stop the plastic from getting the, into the waterways in the first place. And that you know, the, the top most effective one is just trying to avoid the use of these plastic items and obviously encourage, uh, the second one would be encouraging re, re, uh, reuse and recycling. Third option would be some sort of treatment interfe- interception technology to stop plastic in our drainage systems, for example, before it goes into our waterways. But um, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff, but I guess we're sort of leading to the answer. And I, you sort of obviously the answer is given in the title of the paper, but long story short, a very, very large number of river systems, something like 1,656 rivers, account for 80% of the global river plastic emissions into our ocean. So 
what are the key characteristics of these river systems that are likely to contribute to high plastic loads to the ocean. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Yeah, so what we do, and, and yeah, maybe just to quickly reply on what you just said, I, I yeah. agree largely with what you say. I mean, if there wasn't plastic, there was no plastic pollution. And if these plastics were not deposited into the into the environment, they wouldn't make it into the rivers and into the ocean. For sure, prevention and preventing is always better than curing. Mm. Secondly, I think what is very important from what science is providing is a better understanding or at least uh, better numbers or of where you find high concentrations of plastics. Yeah. Because it's just more easy yeah. to clean up plastic once it's concentrated somewhere. And if you find, let's say, accumulation zones or hotspots, I mean, those are the places where you can more easily find them and, and remove them mm. and also prevent them. Because if you know that they always accumulate yeah. at the same place, well, that means that you can think about how to remove them uh, preventively or mitigate at least the effects or remove them from the environment. Of course, if you think about it, mobile, dynamic, complex systems such as rivers or estuaries or oceans with, <laughs> with currents and winds and waves and everything. Yeah, it, to me, it, it just it is just more complicated than finding, let's say, accumulation zones on riverbanks or in vegetation or in floodplains yeah. or on land. So, I mean, I, th- I think uh, I'm, I'm also I'm, it's great that there's so many initiatives and so many new technologies or methods or prevention methods and interventions to remove plastics uh, from the ocean. But I think. Yeah, if we can prevent them entering the ocean or entering the environment in the first place, that would be uh, best, of course. So, yeah, please, uh, mm. please put me out of a job. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, that's not going to be the case in the coming decades. Um, <laughs> then your second question about the characteristics of these river systems. Yeah, so what we do find is that, you know, plastics are, of course, an, a, a human problem. It's an ethnogenic yeah. issue. So where you have people, you have pollution and you have plastic pollution. So river systems that pollute the most are often also places where you have high concentrations or high density of highly urbanized areas with high population densities where people live close to river systems and where these these populations are also close to the river mouth. And that's basically it. It relates more to the people and the location of the people in combination with the available waste infrastructure than it is related to anything else. And sure, there is a lot of variables that help transporting and mobilizing plastics, uh, such as uh, wind, river discharge, service runoff, etc. So, of course, if you have areas that are prone to flooding, well, we already showed in other research that floods have a devastating multiplying effect on the mobilization of plastics. Mm. 
Again, it doesn't mean that those plastics end up in the ocean. What we see is that, yes, uh, if, there is, if there is a flood, there is a massive mobilization of plastics. It can be 100 times more than during normal conditions. But most of these plastics, again, are deposited within a couple of kilometers of, the, of, of their original source. But the same also for other variables. For example, uh, think about cyclones or, or, or other, um, let's say, catastrophes that have such sudden power, sudden driving power to mobilize plastics, uh, not only plastic waste, but also plastic that you maybe use in your garden or on your terrace or in your house. And well, if your house is flooded, well, you can have the best waste management system available, but still your whole household is dragged away and maybe emitted into rivers mm. and making way into the ocean. <laughs> so there's more to it. Huh? Like there is, unfortunately, even if we have the perfect waste management system and everything is, is, is collected and recycled and repurposed, et cetera, if you have these extreme events, it can still mean that all our stuff is out there in the environment and gets into the rivers and gets into the ocean. That's also what we're now seeing in the Netherlands. So mm. the Netherlands is always seen as, let's say, a relatively clean country. Still, we find plastic everywhere. I have not been on a riverbank in the Netherlands where there's no plastic waste. Last summer, there was an unfortunate flood event. It was, I think, a flood event that occurs only once every 200 years. In the upstream mm. parts of the Meuse Basin, there was an extreme discharge, extreme river flow, and also extreme amounts of, of plastics and also non-waste plastics that were mobilized. And then all of a sudden, you see these huge garbage patches in the Meuse, in the river that mm. is just, uh, you know, 100 kilometers away from, from my home. With And I have to say this correctly, and we're still working on the data, but the first... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Observations, they, they, they suggest that, uh, that during this flood peak, the Meuse was one of the most uh, polluted rivers measured to date with numbers that are comparable to rivers in, in Vietnam and, and, uh, and the Philippines, which are featuring in, in the top 10 and top 50 of, of our paper as the most polluting rivers. And I think that's mm. in an unfortunate way fascinating. That's mm. sure uh, that it's places with people and poor waste management system living close to rivers that are causing most of the pollution, most of the river emissions, let's say under normal or regular conditions. Yeah. But if yeah. you take into account these extreme situations, then basically any place on earth with people can be a potential catastrophe from the viewpoint of plastic pollution. Oh, look, and I personally speak from experience. So it's it's the 5th of March here in Brisbane. And I'm not sure if you know, just last weekend, we were absolutely devastated with horrendous flooding. Yeah. Uh, and that flooding has moved into uh, northern New South Wales and, and Lismore in particular, that sort of area, which is sort of um, mid-north coast of New South Wales has been absolutely hammered. And they're talking, you know, 500 year, one in 500 year events, one in yeah, 1,000 wow. year events. And, yeah. and those sort of numbers don't really mean anything anymore with climate change because we know we've got increased severity of, of major flood events and that's all um i guess exacerbating this issue but similarly we know and, and obviously when we see the brisbane river on the news we see the huge quantities of massive items just floating down the the river not just bottles and, and plastic wrappers but cranes uh, exactly exactly uh so yeah and that all has to go yeah. somewhere Exactly. And then when you think about it, you know, we can do our best to recycle everything that we have and we mm. can maybe replace our pet bottles with, with reusable uh, materials and we can uh, either stop using straws or using paper straws. But in the end, during these flood events, it's our fridges that are floating in the river. <laughs> you know, so cars, how, and yeah. cars and, and well, everything made of plastic and other materials that you can think of. So how do you go about that? Uh, so you, you can still, yeah, you can have very the difficult. perfect yeah. circular economy, but, but sometimes nature has different plans. And then, yeah, we need to be but, prepared for that. 
But the the regular items, and I guess from a from an ecosystem health perspective in particular, it's generally the sort of the the everyday, the sort of more frequent events that cause the most damage. Obviously, floods are not uh, an unnatural thing; they happen, you know, in a natural, very natural system. But river systems and oceans are, have a sort of resilience for these extreme events. But the sort of smaller, frequent rainfall events and flow events. What what are the key types of plastic that you're actually seeing in these river systems around the world? Is does it vary, or is it relatively yes. consistent? Yeah, yeah. I, w- I would say it, vary, it varies a lot. So how we uh, unromantically say it is that the rivers are sort of the digestive system of society. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a suiting analogy because it shows basically what is consumed, how does the infrastructure look like, and, that, and as a result, you have a certain composition of waste and, and plastics in, in river systems. And it really depends. So I had the privilege to do another field trip in Ghana last year, December. And if you look at the plastic items that are featuring in the rivers there or featuring in the rivers that are flowing to the capital city of Accra, you compare that to the plastics that we're now finding in in the Mekong, it is already a whole world of a difference. Just very simple. So whereas in in some rivers, such as the Oda River in Accra, Ghana, we find a lot of pet bottles. We find a huge amount of these uh, these sachets. Um, Whereas here in in the Mekong River, we find... A lot of foams, foamy materials, uh, so expanded polystyrene, and we find a lot of food packaging. And in a way, it also makes sense, because if you think about it, in Western Africa, safe drinking water is often distributed in in these sachets. So rather than Mm -hmm. pet bottles, they use a lot of uh, drinking sachets or or plastic sachets. So I guess it's a good thing, because now there is access to safe drinking water for very low prices for everyone who's living there. But at the same time, well, for every half liter of water, there is a sachet that you cannot really deposit or insert in a, in a working waste infrastructure. And then unfortunately, a lot of this, this waste is ending up in and around river systems. So it means that in, in such rivers, you have a lot of soft plastics, a lot of uh, uh, these plastic bags, etc. Here in the Mekong, it's different. So it's mm. uh, it's it's different use. The river here is, is much larger. There's a lot of places that are used for recreation. Uh, people enjoy, of course, sitting along the riverside. Unfortunately, given the absence of, of waste management in many places, uh, these lunchboxes magically sort of end up in mm. these river systems. So yeah, it's it's really it's really it really depends. It's really uh, interesting. Yeah. People enjoy the river, but they just leave their their stuff behind. Or it's it's I guess the plastics that are that are, that are easily transported through wind or through urban drainage yeah. systems into into the river. A couple of comments. So number one, whilst it is variable, it does seem to be reasonably consistent. So more or less most of the time, most of the plastics are single use plastics. Now whether they're sachets or wrappers or pet bottles or cigarettes or whatever, they're single use items. And for me, and that's for me, there's an opportunity. Like if, if we can essentially get rid of the or get rid of the use of these single use items, we'd go a long way to mitigating this plastic issue. But also your research is actually very consistent with uh, uh, that of a, a recent guest, uh, Dr. Lauren Roman from CSIRO, who's teamed up with Denise Hardis, who's also been on our show right. and basically said, yeah, look, there's pollutant hotspots all across the planet. It's not just you know, the, these 10 river systems. It's not just Asia. It's basically everywhere. And even in Australia, on the east coast of Australia, we're essentially a plastic pollution hotspot for our recreational fishing lines. Yeah. Just because we've got a bit of an outdoor culture of, of recreational fishing. So we're actually a very high density of, of discarded recreational fishing items, basically. But, but just getting back to these, you mentioned, you know, Ghana and West Africa and how it does vary in terms of plastic items found across the globe. But Geographically speaking, uh, these 1,656 
river systems is are there sort of common areas are there more in west africa or more in asia or is there a sort of pattern is there a general pattern globally around yeah. the key sources of these river systems there is, but that also largely has to do with topography itself and uh, with right. how these river systems are formed. Because you can imagine that, you know, in, in places where you have these huge deltas, such as, well, again, the Netherlands or maybe the Mississippi River, for example. Well, in, in that case, the river system has just converted into this mega river, so to mm. say. But in places where there, where the topography is very different and for all kinds of reasons that, that's not really possible, just because there's not enough land or the slope is very steep, mm. you just have way more smaller rivers naturally. So if you go to island nations such as Indonesia or the Philippines, it wouldn't physically be possible to have large rivers. So that means yep. that, that, sure, maybe there is the same amount of total discharge, but it's just naturally distributed over 10, 20, 100 times more rivers than in other places. So it's not per se that because of the, because of only the human aspects, it's that more rivers are located into, in, in these areas. It's also because of the, mm. the, the natural landscape that sort of shapes river systems that makes wow. it that, that most yeah. of these rivers yeah. are in those locations. But of course, it's, uh, again, it's a combination of the natural environment, the natural factors plus the human ones. So places where you have a lot of people living together and where you have not ideal waste infrastructure yet. And then unfortunately, there are some hotspots around the world where you have most people living. And that is, well, in, in Southeast Asia, uh, also Southern Africa, Latin America. Those are unfortunately hotspots of, of, uh, of plastic pollution. But really because of that combination of well, a lot of people and the, the natural sort of shape of river systems there. I guess the other factor we haven't sort of mentioned is higher rainfall. I guess if you've, if you've got uh, locations with higher rainfall intensity and volume, I'm, I'm guessing there'll be more plastic being conveyed into the waterways. Well, that, that's something we don't know yet. And, and I'm also not sure if that, right. if that is really the case. I, I can imagine that it doesn't really matter well, or that the total amount of rainfall is maybe not a governing factor. It's more about when does how much rainfall fall. So is it sort of evenly just, I mean, the thing is in the Netherlands or at least uh, some, some time ago before also our rainfall patterns have changed, rain would sort of come uh, continuously. Rain all the time, but always a little bit. You know, it makes us very healthy, but also very grumpy. Oh, I say green. Uh, <laughs> and very green, etc. It's, it's lovely. But if you compare that, if you have the same amount of rainfall in a year, but if it's concentrated in one day yeah. or in, in 10 days, well, then all of a sudden you have this driving force that can just, mm. you know, it erodes the landscape, but it also erodes plastics and mobilizes plastics. And that is, for example, what we, what we see again in, in Accra and Ghana. The river basin there is a river basin that doesn't really receive a con continuous amount of rainfall. It comes in a small number of these erratic events or these sporadic, very high intensity events. And those are the moments when you suddenly see that there's these pulses of input of plastics into the river, mm. but also impulses of plastic emission from the river mouth into the ocean. It's not per se, I think, the total amount of rainfall, but it's really how it is distributed yeah. and at what intensity the rainfall is, uh, is coming. Just based on this study, so we're saying the key uh, factors contributing to high plastic loads going from our rivers into our oceans are generally smaller river systems with a closer connection to the ocean. Second one being high population densities. And thirdly, I guess, poorer waste management infrastructure. They're probably the key factors contributing to higher plastic yeah. discharges into our ocean from rivers. Is that, is that a fair summary? I think that's a good summary. And also, as you, as just, as, uh, just to add, as you said, I mean, plastic pollution is everywhere. And mm. we're very, I think, well, we're still very focused on areas where we think is a lot of plastic pollution. And I think, unfortunately, that also causes a bit of a bias. 
and a bit of a tunnel vision. It's very difficult at the moment to get projects funded in places which are assumed to be low on plastic pollution. Yeah. Uh, I visited some places that are considered, uh, let's say, uh, clean countries, uh, including uh, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland. Well, it's very difficult to convince stakeholders or scientists that also there you can find plastics. Fortunately, there's a, there's, a, there's a solution, and it's the, the, the power of citizen science. And together with uh, the University of Zurich, we updated an, ev- or an, an existing citizen science app called Crowdwater that can be used by ev- everyone and anyone around the world to take simple measurements of the hydrology, so how much water is in the river, but also of the, uh, of the amount of plastic pollution, either on riverbanks or floating in that river. And because of that, I was able to show a picture in one of these countries where I asked the question, where do you think this river is? And the majority of the audience said, well, it must be Southeast Asia, it must be mm. Africa, must be, well, somewhere far away. Uh, and unfortunately, I had to tell them that this picture was taken earlier that morning around the corner in the local river that was flowing through wow. the capital of one of these places. So that just shows that, you know, with, with more data, more observations, we can also have a more nuanced view on, as you say, where we can find these pollution hotspots. Because pollution hotspots globally, well, sure, there are, there are specific uh, geographic zones where it's more likely to find higher amounts of high and higher concentration of plastics. But it doesn't mean that regionally or nationally there are no plastic hotspots. Because yeah. where there's people, there's pollution, there's plastics. We just have to figure out where does it concentrate because you, you do find these hotspots anywhere yeah. where there's people, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's similar for me. It's similar in Australia. Like, uh, there's some, there's a lot of people in Australia that think our beaches are clean, and and look, they are relatively speaking. And they think well, any plastic that comes into Australian waterways or waters is is must be from Asia or Indonesia. But the the research is unequivocal. The vast majority of ocean, of plastic entering Australian waters is from Australia. You know, it's roughly about a ton and a half an hour on average of plastic going into Australian waters. And a, a big contributing factor there is stormwater, uh, the, yep. the, the conveyance of, you know, when rain falls, it washes our streets and roads, et cetera, clean, but ultimately that has to go somewhere. So it's, it's again, it's, it's using science to actually better understand an issue and subsequently drive management actions to appropriately address this issue, which for me, this leads to the ultimate question. Okay. So you've done this research and, uh, and found that, okay, plastics coming from a whole bunch of river systems and there's some key factors that contribute to that discharge. Based on your research, what are the key management actions that really we should be implementing to reduce river plastic loads into our ocean? I would say that's a very tricky question. It's the thing is, I, I, I don't know yet. Like, I think there's, there's, there's too yeah. little knowledge, too little, um, experience with what works and what doesn't. What I do know is that at the end of the day, if we want to make the best decisions, if we want to design the best strategies to reduce and mitigate and, and prevent and clean up river plastics or ocean plastics or plastic pollution in general, observations and data and science is crucial. Mm. Because we need the science, we need the data to to start thinking about interventions. You know, making decisions yeah. on where to focus, where to where to prioritize. But also, we need the data to sh- to show that a measure is actually effective or not. Because if you don't have the data to show yeah. that that measure uh, or intervention A or B is actually working, we cannot improve it, we cannot replace it, we cannot optimize it. So I think that that will be my final answer. I mean, there's a lot of uh, smaller and larger interventions that seem to be effective, mm. but I think the the main the main thing we have to do is make sure that our data collection is in order and it's reliable and it's accurate. 
Mm. But I guess ultimately, like getting back to your research, we do know that people, where we've got high densities of people, we know we've got high yeah. production of plastic waste. And I think we at least know where, ge- you know, geographically where to target our efforts. Now, whatever those efforts might be, that it might be the, the C-bin, might be interceptors, might be uh, stormwater management infrastructure, it might be education, might be recycling, whatever. But at least we know, and it might be all of those things. Well, but I'm, at I'm least pretty we sure know. it's going to be all of them. So, that, that, yeah, yeah. Gonna, so I don't know what, but we need everything. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's yeah, a very yeah. complex complicated chain from producer to consumer to to the environment and i think at each step there's something we can gain and it, it's also each mm. step where we need to put our efforts so as you say yeah. you know we can redesign products it doesn't need to be from this material we can think about how to improve waste infrastructure so you know we always jokingly said you know how do we clean the ocean well by putting trash bins where people recreate where people live because mm. then once your waste is captured there it doesn't end up in the ocean but at the same time, there is also always moments when plastic will end up in the environment. And again, that can, that can mainly be due to these, uh, uh, catastrophes through these extreme events. And we have to be ready to also clean the environment when some, something like that happens. So maybe just another example. Mm-hmm. Eh? We, there's, there's of course so many other types of, of chemical uh, pollution and other types of pollution. Yeah. And luckily we see that because of science and because of action, that is also being reduced. I hmm. think that in the long term, hopefully plastic pollution will be something like an oil spill. That's luckily, you know, for oil spill, it is not con- continuously uh, leaking yeah. in rivers and oceans anymore. But yeah. once it happens, once there's an accident or an extreme event, you're able to, to detect it, quantify it and rapidly clean it with technology. And I think that's hmm. exactly how we should start thinking about uh, yeah. plastic pollution in the long term, because it's, you know, it's undoable to scoop out plastics from over a thousand rivers continuously. So we have to focus on making sure it doesn't end up there. But when it does, we need to be prepared to detect it and rapidly remove it. Because the sooner you do that, the yeah, the, the more cost effective and the more effective you are in the end. I don't expect you to sort of be the one developing the strategies of how to solve this issue. But certainly the, the research and the science that you are doing is certainly going a long way towards helping to do uh, essentially address this issue. So for that, I thank you. So I'm just, I'm just keen to sort of pick your brain as to sort of see what you might think. But I guess that's the next question. So what is actually next for you? What, what is the next for your research? You're in Cambodia. Well, yeah, we're in Cambodia <laughs> right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, so what you just said about developing these strategies, uh, well, for, for interventions and for measures, that is not, not our expertise, but, but what yeah. is our expertise is plastic monitoring and yeah. developing plastic monitoring strategies for freshwater systems around the world. And that is something that will be the main focus of my research, but also our general efforts in, in the coming years, hopefully, is to not only provide the tools and guidelines and the scaffolding for stakeholders on various skills to start designing and implementing uh, long-term monitoring strategies, but also to, uh, yeah, to disseminate the science to local stakeholders mm-hmm. where possible. So at the moment, we're doing workshops for, for, for stakeholders in the, in the Mekong River Basin to start or to, to, to advance the discussion on river plastic pollution mm-hmm. monitoring. There's already a great deal of work being done here in the Mekong. So also I can learn from the, and, and my team can learn from the efforts being done. We can learn from, from what the Mekong River Commission is already doing in terms of river plastic monitoring, bring that home to Europe where unfortunately in, in, in this aspect, but uh, we're, we're lagging behind a little bit. But uh, yeah, every every step is one. And, and that will be our, uh, I guess, one of our main goals to, to translate our science into impact, into action. But for us, that means developing 
guidelines and protocols and, and strategies to help stakeholders develop their long-term plastic monitoring strategies in river mm. systems and other uh, freshwater environments. Yeah, that's amazing. Honestly, this has been a fascinating chat. You're a super inter- interesting individual. There's no doubt about that. But I guess you've, you've obviously been living and breathing this plastic research for a while. You seem optimistic. Are you optimistic that we'll actually address this plastic pollution issue appropriately and effectively and quickly enough? I'm optimistic, but I'm very optimistic because uh, scientifically we've been, we've been making huge steps and there have been a lot of advances from, from so many teams around the world. And it's, it's really exciting to be in the middle of this uh, or to be part of this scientific community because every day when I open my browser, I see new papers being published. I see new technologies uh, for, for plastic monitoring being released. And, and that's fascinating. It's really, mm. that makes me optimistic for the science, for the impact, for yeah. how to, how to solve this. I mean, it is challenging. And mm. I have to, have to say, you know, knowing that it's, it's taking so much time for us to act on climate change, I'm not sure how we're going to act as a, as a global community uh, on, on plastic pollution. Maybe we, we can do it better and we can do it faster because it is so tangible, because you see it everywhere, yeah. because you yeah. see what it does to, to the environment, what it does to us. But you can also rapidly see the effect of doing something as opposed to climate change. At the same time, we also need to intervene at all these different steps, at all these different spatial and temporal skills. And yeah, that just requires a lot of collaboration across countries, across stakeholders, requiring action from from all kinds of individuals and parties and, and stakeholders again. So it is very complicated. I'm not very sure when we'll be able to well really make those those big steps. We I mean I know that there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, there was just uh, the successful uh, mm. uh, UNIA or uh, UNEP conference uh, closed with uh, the pledge to uh, or the agreement to work towards a plastic treaty in a couple of years. Mm. Well, those are important steps. Yeah, there's still a lot more work to be done. I also do think, if you, if you look at it across the globe, that yeah, global action is always difficult, but fortunately, uh, plastic pollution action is taken at the local level as well. And there, I think yeah. we really see sort of the power and the optimism and uh, the great efforts done by local communities here, but also in in the Netherlands, undoubtedly also in Australia. Uh, not only in terms of helping contributing to data collection, but also to to cleaning rivers, uh, cleaning the environment thinking about how to replace or change your own consumption behavior, how to change your own well, waste management, etc. So in that sense, it's, it's way more, well, I guess, again, tangible than, than fighting climate change. And that does make yeah. me hopeful and optimistic. But most optimistic, again, I'm about the advances in science because those are there and those will continue to be there for the, for the coming years uh, uh, for sure. Look, this has been an amazing chat. I feel as though we could talk all day, but I, I don't want to hold you back from doing your, your awesome science. But on behalf of everyone trying to do something towards mitigating this issue of plastic pollution, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much uh, for all your and your team's efforts in relation to getting better science around addressing, uh, better understanding this issue and, and appropriately mitigating this issue. So, yeah, for me, it's been wonderful to talk to you. It's been really great to actually get your, uh, obviously to read your paper and get a better understanding, but also to have this sort of discussion and share it with others has been a real privilege. So in that regard, I thank you so much for coming on our show and, and sharing your story and your knowledge. And uh, I, I honestly can't wait to see 
what you guys do next in your uh, scientific endeavors. But thanks so much for coming on our show. Yeah, it was, a, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for yeah. having me, and thank you for for yeah allowing me to to present a bit on uh, on uh, about the work that uh, that my team and, and me are doing, and all the other great sciences being done by teams around the world. Uh, so thanks a lot for for having me. It was a great conversation, and I hope that we will uh, meet again someday. Sounds good. Boom, boom, shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.